Hello, and welcome to episode two of the Rally for Results podcast. I'm your host, Claire Richards. And for those of you who are watching the video, you'll notice that I am in one of our spare bedrooms. That is, of course, because we are in the midst of the COVID crisis. But we did not want to let that stop us from sharing some innovative ideas with you all. So I'm very, very excited to welcome our guest, Carlos Abler, to the vodcast. Welcome, Carlos. Oh, thank you so much. It's such a pleasure to be here. And, uh, you know, it looks like you have a very nice uh, environment to be doing this from there. Very comfortable, cozy. I see there's some wood and natural light coming in. So, <laughs> you know, um, you're making the best of your uh, your your refuge. Yeah, I will say the one pro to working from home, which I'm not the type of person that likes to work from home, but um, I've got a window right by my computer, which I do not have at my workspace. It's been pretty nice. Um, so Carlos has over 30 years of experience creating really dynamic and engaging content strategies. And Carlos, you and I met last year at One Squared, which is a marketing event. You were on the panel and I was I was really inspired by some of the things that you shared, which is, of course, why I reached out and asked if you'd be on the podcast. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's a pleasure. Thank you for having me. That was a fantastic event and a, and a good discussion. So happy to, uh, you know, roll with some of those those themes here with you now. So I thought we could start by just having you share a little bit about yourself, your history, your background. Um, and then I have a feeling we're going to cover some really great topics relating to the current environment that we are all in. Sure. Yeah. So, um, so I've been in the digital space for, for a while and in the content space for a very long time. Uh, my background going way back um, is rooted in theater and performance and puppetry and poetry and a lot of the arts, uh, which has a lot of, have a lot of strong storytelling components to them. Um, and then also a lot of background in studying humans and how they work. So anthropology, history of religions, cultural theory, uh, psychology, sociology, and a lot of disciplinary blendings of those things. Um, and those two areas of focus play very well together um, coming into the digital space. Uh, back in my 20s when I was, you know, doing theater and that kind of thing in the pre-digital era, um, I was beginning to construct ideas for large-scale multimedia theater productions and feature-length films. Huh, interesting. Mm -hmm. Yeah, at that time, in the, in the late 90s, I was uh, living in New York and doing stuff in the theater world there a little bit at Columbia University and <clears throat> kind of learning from the, uh, uh, a lot about the business side of theater and how do you get things sold and how do you get people involved and that type of thing. And and uh, so I'm like, well, you know, I have to get these crazy ideas out of my head into some sort of format, you know, people can can also experience. Um, so I started learning digital tools to create animations and basically like movie trailers of the concepts that I had to try to get, you know, uh, people involved. And then this led me down a digital path because as I was learning these new tools, whether it was 3D animation or sound design or you know, illustration and so on, I was able to monetize these skills immediately, which was cool. So that started to lead me into, you know, new forms of, of business. And, and then in the, the mid aughts, um, 
I, I had a particularly interesting set of opportunities to bring together the storytelling and deep content aspects and academic aspects all together with digital, um, doing projects with people like the Smithsonian and History Channel um, that began to combine all these skills. And I realized, wow, in the in the digital space, you know, for budgets much less than in feature-length filmmaking, I can scratch similar storytelling itches. So for $75,000 for the History Channel, I could do something that might cost $75 million to do in a feature-length film, and it's a lot easier to get seventy-five grand than it is $75 million. So I started doing that kind of stuff, and really meaningful, beautiful work, in, interactive graphic novels that, you know, link to primary historical resources with interviews. And I mean, it was just really fun to bring together all these different storytelling formats and deliver very meaningful and, and rich content. And that's where I really started to also discover the social impact and social value aspects of technology in the mid uh, uh, 2000s, a project we did for the Smithsonian. Uh, won a Webby Award and many other awards, but we one of them was from an organization called the World Summit on the Information Society, which was focused on how people are using the internet, using uh, content-driven applications to basically solve human sustainability issues, whether it's reducing infant and maternal mortality at scale in India or helping clean waterways, you know, among you know regional fisheries and fisher people, any number of things. Um, we won a, you know, an award from this organization focusing on that area and studying that organization opened my mind to really the, the power for human empowerment and sustainability that, uh, our applications and our content, uh, can deliver. And so that was all happening in the, in the mid aughts and that, that wove together to help me understand a, a key insight that later on became much promoted in the content context of content marketing around how do we add value for people through our content instead of just talking about how great we are with our content how do we find ways to um, add value with that content and that means going from content as communication to content as product and that was going on a lot in this nonstop in this world of social innovation and entrepreneurship where people were using content and technologies in ways to really, truly uh, uh, empower people. Anyway, mm -hmm. so in the mid aughts, all of that was kind of roiling together in my experience. And then I moved on deeper into the digital strategy side of things and user experience and, and, and understanding business strategy and then on into uh, uh uh, in particular, moving into my experience going into 3M, where I, I worked for eight years, uh, focused on how you help modernize business to operate in a digitized world, whether that is, of course, in the in the context of marketing and sales and customer relationships and all of that type of thing, but also in terms of digitized business models and how some of these things weave together and how do you deploy global technologies and new practices at scale in a large enterprise, which in 3M's case is a, you know, a roughly $30 billion company with about 25 businesses across 70 operations in 70 geographies and 200 markets. So really, <laughs> a, a, it's so, and trying to change the, the practices literally of tens of thousands of people within the organization. So I started to move from digital in the sense of just doing content and websites and products and applications and, and all that type of thing into how you modernize workforces to 
uh, operate in a digitized world, which for me still very much had a content focus, which we can go into in depth at some point here. But anyway, so that's kind of roughly the arc is kind of going from the arts and human studies and all that kind of thing into deep content and experience design on into how you help scale those capabilities in an organization for modern business. So I've been reading some of your work and you, you're a thinker. I can tell you really contemplate things. And, um, and I love how you start to frame up the modern business and personal issues that we are facing. Um, I think so much is relevant in the current environment. Uh, one piece that you had written was all about intrinsic and extrinsic forces that allow for innovation or change. And what is more extrinsic than the COVID crisis? I was curious if you could talk a little bit about how you see that influencing what businesses decide to change or uh, adopt. Yeah, that's a big topic. And it's keeping <laughs> <laughs> it's keeping a lot of us busy right now, speculating as to what this all means and what's the new normal and how do we adapt and all that kind of stuff. So this is this is a, a really big topic. Um, one of the things that comes up for me is how much of this is really accelerating things that we were doing already. So, for example, we've been talking for a long time about, think, uh, especially in the context of digital transformation, around greater agility and resiliency, and how do we leverage the technologies and things that we uh, have access to in order to it, optimize your user experience and create efficiencies and um, be of greater service to people and do business cleaner, smarter, and better? How do we, you know, close some of the gaps and disjointedness in the customer experience in terms of how marketing re relates with customers and sales and PR and corporate comms and all these different things? And how do we become more seamless and holistic? There's so many different things that we've been talking about for a long time that now are getting a lot more attention for acceleration. And so one of the good news aspects of all of this is that there are a number of things that we can do within the context of current disruptions that there are solutions for. One of the contexts in which we see this quite brilliantly are in how uh, schools are responding to the disruption of being able to have children in a classroom. So, for example, here in Minneapolis Public Schools, according to many parents that I've been in contact with, um, are doing an incredible job at rapid digital adoption. And one of the things that has been happening for a long time, and if you work in organizations like I did for a long time, um, in, in helping them make transitions to new forms of business practice and operating in this digitized world and using new tools and, and a whole range of modernization issues. You have your people who move quickly and you have your people who are the fast followers and then you have your laggards and on down to the people who are just basically waiting to retire, you know, doing <laughs> things the way they've always done it, Right. And the people who are never going to come along, and uh, and you'll see this over and over in a lot of different studies, 
um, related to what are some of the big obstacles for digital transformation or getting value realization from your technology investments or your content marketing. And a lot of it, you know, comes back to the people. The people are just slow to change. They don't have the skills or a lot of it comes back to people and process and talent development and all this kind of stuff, which is very difficult. Well, now with what's happening with COVID, um, this sort of laggard and kind of people passive aggressively, you know, not really changing and adapting that that's over. OK, mm -hmm. so the, like so in the I'm going to go back to the case of talking about public schools, a lot of the technologies and things for delivering online learning, you know, remote education, all this kind of stuff have been around for a long time. But and you'll hear this anecdotally from a lot of parents. It's like, oh, different teachers use this stuff really differently. and why isn't there yeah, any consistency yeah. in how they do it? And you have the same thing as like in these big corporations, you have all this redundancy of uh, everybody saying, well, what's the best way to deliver STEM curriculum in my particular thing? And so people, you have a lot of people reinventing the wheel over and over. And in that environment, it's really hard for best practices to take off and become normalized because basically people are just really slow and ad hoc because the adoption of these things has a much more of an optional kind of operating in a more optional kind of environment. But that's not the case anymore. And that's why we're mm -hmm. starting to see some kind of buzzword concepts. Like I, I think I saw one the other day it was something like instant transformation. You know what I mean? <laughs> like instead of this roadmap of digital transformation, like, no, you've got like a week to figure this out or you're dead. You know what I mean? Like, like, how do you do this? And, and you know, school, like in the case of schools, they're also getting into, okay, well, you know, they're responsible for feeding a big percentage of the populace, right? I mean, they're, mm -hmm. they don't just deliver education, they deliver food. So they start doing things like working with local markets and things to distribute food and all that kind of stuff. But, you know, what, when for their rapid digitization, hey, not everybody has computers, not everybody has internet. So there are people over there, you know, they're technologists and so on, who are like working, you know, 12 hour days every day, you know, trying mm -hmm. to get laptops to kids that don't have them to do all this kind of stuff. So I think, you know, one of the things we're seeing and we're going to see some very interesting kind of rapid digital adoption case studies around some of these high urgency areas uh, that businesses are, are also kind of being faced with. And I think the the public school one is a really good example. And there's definitely a lot of directions we could go here in terms of in the conversation, in terms of what um you know, uh, aspects of change and how that plays out. But I think just the, the first thing I really want to bring up is this, this whole notion that, that, Hey, there's a lot of demand for how we move stuff into digital now, now that we have to be remote now that, that personal contact is, you know, more of a, a luxury or something that's entirely forbidden. Um, and it's really just putting the, the pedal to the metal on stuff that's been going for a while. Yeah, I'll be really curious to see how businesses, um, how how they shift gears over the next couple of months. One of my friends works for a technology company and they had rolled out to the team after we're back to normal. We're not doing working from home. Like the expectation is that people are still going to come back in the office, which I thought was curious. Uh, one from the standpoint of, well, <laughs> You might be counting your chicks before they've hatched. We are we are not out of the woods yet. Um, and then the other just being that why why wouldn't you allow work from home as long as the the results are there, as long as people are getting their work done? There just seems to be such a hesitation around adopting these newfangled ideas. <laughs> 
Yeah, yeah. There's actually a few things that come up for me when you mention that. Uh, one is okay, counting your chickens too early, right? What uh, one of the things that we're having to figure out or just respond to, and nobody has the answers to this stuff, is what what is the new normal, and and you know, are, when do we go back to normal? Do we ever go back to normal? Um, and there are some extrinsics involved in this, right? Like if you know, we're on a Spanish flu kind of pandemic or their cycle of it, where I think it was, and don't quote me on this, I don't have it in front of me, but it was something like this, where the second wave was three or four, like four times the mm-hmm. the wave of the first. I have heard that, the, yeah. yeah. And then the third wave was something like double or triple that of the first, right? So you had this sort of up and then a big spike and then down, and then another spike that was bigger than the first one, and then down, right? We don't know if it's going to be like that or not, right? We don't know if this thing is going to mutate quickly or not. Um, And we're hearing that we can expect a lot more of this stuff in the future with climate change and, you know, uh, uh, warming places and disruptions of ecosystems and places long frozen now thawing out and hissing out fumes and all this kind of stuff. You know, there's a lot of thinking that, you know, we're potentially going to be dealing with this on a cyclical basis and on faster cycles than what we're used to. Now, what this is going to mean is this need for kind of modular adaptation, right? So there, there's a couple of things, again, that came up in what you were saying. One is this issue of cycles and how are we responding to it? The next is what are our variations in different ways we can respond to mm-hmm. these sort of known unknown fluctuations, which gets into modularity. And then there's this other thing kind of related to the office. And I'll, I'll comment quickly on, on, on yeah. all yeah. of all of these uh, on the business track. One of the things we're seeing um, is that, OK. Is the impact really just going to affect your operational and delivery model? So, for example, do people no longer get to come into your stores and now you just have to get a little bit better with your e-commerce and make sure that the data and your stock and inventory is up to date so that people don't waste a lot of time building elaborate shopping carts that suddenly none of the products are really there or can't really be delivered because 15 minutes after you got done putting this thing together, you realize there are no delivery windows all this kind of crap, right? All that needs to get resolved. People need to get tight on, you know, the sort of delivery and ordering kind of thing, right? A lot of that sort of example is just enhancing and optimizing something that already existed. However, let's say that your business model inherently involves getting, you know, 20, 30 kids into a room at a time, right? Let's say you're, you know, delivering some kind of service that's helping kids with trauma sort of work through their trauma doing art. Okay. Mm -hmm. There's organizations. I'm thinking of a specific one that that does this right now. Well, if suddenly you can't get kids together in a room, uh, your model's over or is it over? That's the question. Is it done forever or is it done for a really long time? Cause we were going to have this Spanish flu kind of thing. That's going to take a long time to play out, but then maybe you've got, you know, eight to 15 to 20 years before 30 years, 50 years before it happens again, or do we expect this every other year or what? Right. So within that kind of view, if you start to say, okay, is there a way we can digitize and remotely deliver some of the same kind of curriculum? 
do we train parents and brothers and sisters and other family members who might be part of that trusted uh, uh, network of, of vectors, you know, who are living in their house to help actually deliver some of the curriculum that normally our volunteers or other staff members did, which is very similar to what happens in the world of remote healthcare. Because like when you're trying to get, let's say you're in Africa or wherever, and you're trying to get remote healthcare into villages and so on, what they will do, for example, in digitizing healthcare delivery is use SMS and text messaging much more, much more but they will train uh, local healthcare, basically volunteers, to be able to do things like run an assessment and a diagnostic or, or even give injections and some of that kind of thing. Um, but that's kind of a similar model where you're basically training up people who are available, but maybe not necessarily professionals, to deliver th- offload some of that delivery model in a way that makes sense. And so that can happen now at a family level or neighborhood or whatever the trusted network of vectors is uh, and this kind of thing. Okay, back to this case. If you're you know, uh, um, doing this stuff with kids to help them with their traumas through art and you realize... Okay, we actually can develop some remote delivery. Maybe that's going to shrink the uh, our organization by sixty percent or something. So now we don't have three full time employees anymore. Now we have one full time and a part time. And but if on this arc over time, there are times where it's all cool for us to get back together in a room, and there's times that aren't. Now what we're looking at is a kind of modular adaptation over time. So it's like Mm. we can predict, hey, in a good season, we're going to be able to ramp back up to the three or 30 or however many employees. But during these sort of black swan kind of disruptions, we're going to have to scale back rapidly and push more into the digital side of delivery, right? So I'm just using this sort of quick and dirty scenario to talk about this concept of modularity um, and response. And then I have thoughts on the office stuff too, but I want to pause there just in case there's any, um, just anything you wanted to say in relationship to that, because I can talk. I th- yeah, no, I think that's so interesting. The modular approach. Um, I think it's going to change the dynamic of employee employer relationships long-term. Um, of course there, there has always been a need for temporary staffing, right? But this, it feels like this takes it to a whole new level where maybe that becomes more of the norm. Um, and obviously, we've been ramping up towards a gig economy for years. This feels like a natural fit into that in many ways. So just interesting. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, I, I, and I didn't look into this. I just um, saw, uh, saw this somewhere. But I, I think we're going to see a lot of things like this where, where, you know, all of a sudden, wow, we need a lot of respirators, right? And, mm-hmm. and face masks and things like that. Um, you know, we may see people wanting to be part of volunteer forces for manufacturing, a little bit like what was happening, you know, during World War II or whatever, right? Where all of a sudden, you know, it's kind of like Rosie the Riveter kind of stuff, right? Where where you've got people who just never thought they would be doing manufacturing who are doing it, if not on a volunteer basis, certainly on a like, wow, we suddenly need all these people, but it's super fluctuating, right? It's like, even more volatile than dealing with like what's happening with welders and so on, on, on much slower arcs of, you know, the increase of manufacturing in the U S for example, has led to this demand for welders that I I think for a long time was, was much less because of outsourced manufacturing or whatever, but with increased domestic production, suddenly local markets demand it, uh, you know, but, but these are kind of more gradual and predictable 
kind of cycles, you know, these other things that are like super disruptive where suddenly you kind of don't need hardly any respirators in comparison to a time like this to all of a sudden, wow, do we need to scale this up so that everyone on the planet has their own little stockpile of respirators? I mean, this is just, you know, the scale and and volatility of this is incredible. And, and those implications for workforces uh, are going to be significant. And this this ties back to the the kind of office comment you're making and what people mm. are learning now. Um, those of us who have done a lot of work and collaboration in a digitized um, environment, as well as, you know, folks like me who, as a professional, have been studying and designing these systems for a long time. And, um, and for, in my particular case, you know, I mentioned that World Summit Awards organization. Um, I became a juror and mentor with that organization. So as a juror, I review, you know, between 60 to over 100 uh, entries a year of different people trying to, you know, provide digital solutions to, you know, deal with sustainability issues and collaboration and the and and remoteness, as I referenced earlier in that remote healthcare example, um, are are a big part of this. So I've I've got a lot of sort of depth and analysis and experience around kind of the difference between, you know, real world meat space uh, uh, work and then what happens in digitization. And as well as some of those change management and device kind of use things that come into it, the more human side. And that's really big. And one of the things that people really need to be doing right now, I mean, this is, you know, I, I mean, obviously I, I, I said really need. So I, must <laughs> really, I must think this is important because I'm shooting on people right now. Um, you know, there, there are, I've seen this a lot with the adoption of intranets and collaboration technologies and all this kind of stuff in work environments. I mean, this is more of also what I did at, at 3M, right? And and in other places. And similarly to that laggard and and fast mover kind of cycle I was talking about earlier, there's a lot of people who just don't want to do it. And some of it is about learning new technologies. Other of other things though relate to a lot of ergonomic considerations and physical body kind of interaction considerations that we don't often talk about. There are some people who just can't type very well. Um, mm -hmm. they, they, or they're uncomfortable expressing themselves in the form of written words, right? They may need to talk things through out loud that more, at least stereotypically you hear that extroverts need to process more through talking <laughs> to others, whether that's hundred percent true, I'm not sure, but we hear that a lot, right? So, um, I think I fall into that bucket. <laughs> uh huh. Uh huh. Yeah, but but um, you know that's not going to fly as much anymore. Yeah, it mm -hmm. can when you can do your Zoom meetings and that kind of stuff and uh, or whatever infrastructure, not just Zoom, but but you know that's becoming the the new verb, right? You know, like yeah. zooming, yeah. right? Like googling, right? <laughs> anyway, um, but this is going to fly anymore, you know, because when you're doing complex projects, you need to communicate with each other and what us nerdy interaction designers have called asynchronously, not at the same time. You, it's, you, it's more of a chat and threaded kind of environment for managing you know, uh, uh, your discussions. And this requires people to be able to type. It requires them to be comfortable with reading a lot, which not everyone is. Just they, they just don't. A lot of people they don't like the physical process of reading, mm -hmm. and it's a very bodily and physical kind of thing. And and they're going to be disadvantaged in a world where you need to have a lot more written communication. We're seeing, you know, like uh, 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 Microsoft recently came out with a study that 
you know, showing that Gen Z is very into chat. So communicating not in real time, you know, through typing, a lot of this kind of stuff are are skills that I've seen a, a, a lot of people don't want to adopt. And mm-hmm. and I know this because I've worked on I, very identical kinds of projects and I'll see teams that are very comfortable with that kind of communication, like with, you know, threaded asynchronous communication, whether it's on, you know, Jira or or Slack or you know, uh, base camp, you know, uh, email, even, you know, all this kind of stuff. And then I'll see, uh, sometimes people will come in who are not comfortable doing that. And I can really see some of those dynamics start to create conflicts in terms of of the comfort level and the flow of people communicating. So there's a lot of subtle things like this, where I think we're, you know, each of us in our own skills need to do some sort of introspection and research around how can we better operate remotely on teams. Of course, we see a lot of advice coming around around meeting etiquette and how to, you know, have online meetings and that kind of thing. Um, But I think it's also going to need to get down into things like if you are on a team of 20 people and you're working on a complicated project and there are literally like, you know, 50 subtopics of discussions going on at any time how you cluster those conversations together in different groups and topics becomes a very challenging and complicated type of thing. Mm -hmm. And not doing that right tends to create a lot of headaches and nightmares. It's not easy to do some of this kind of stuff, but that's an example of one of those things around getting smart on that that can make it more efficient. Well, I think it brings to mind just this idea of accessibility, I mean, ADA compliance and all of those pieces that, again, those are other things that have been ramping up over the last five years that all of a sudden full force seem to matter more than ever. Um, So in a conversation we had earlier this week, you had just talked a little bit about your involvement in the World Summit Awards and this idea of, you know, whether they be nonprofits or organizations, they often land on perhaps more innovative or progressive solutions earlier than businesses do. And so that got me thinking, you know, why is it because they are more inspired? Is it because maybe there's more room for creativity because they're doing it out of passion? Maybe talk a little bit about that. Yeah, sure. Yeah, I I think I think it's a really great question. And and some of the kind of sub questions you're asking about that are all very relevant to it. I mean, certainly from a passion perspective, you know, um, the people who are doing things like, let's say, creating an application that through text messages delivers information to pregnant women in Bangladesh uh, to try to make sure that they're identifying, you know, early warning signs of health issues and taking preventative measures to make sure that they're healthy and that their child is healthy to basically with the goal of reducing the very high rates of infant and maternal mortality that exist there. OK, if you're a startup, you know, or whether you're an NGO, uh, a group of doctors who just cares about it and has thrown some money into it or uh, you're part of a university group who's doing this. There's all these different or a nonprofit. There are all these different uh, places where that comes up, where very much these things are often born out of a tremendous passion, a tremendous mm-hmm. level of caring. And it's that's an that's a really hard thing to beat when you've got that going on. And, you know, if we could only bring that kind of passion into our businesses, just think what would happen kind of stuff. Right. And that's what, you know, great leaders are always trying to inspire. 
And you've you've talked a lot about that, the finding your why and um, understanding what you truly want. Yeah. Yeah. And if and 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 so let me let me back up a little bit and kind of get to that, because um, I think there's a really especially because a lot of our audiences here are going to be business oriented. So kind of ground I want to ground this a little bit in a business context um, and and kind of get to that, the the finding your why, the Simon Simic Sinek kind of thing and where Simic, not Cynic. <laughs> Sorry, Simon. Um, <laughs> probably not the first time to have that little Freudian slip. But um, anyway. Uh, 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 you'd mentioned about how, uh, uh, the social innovators and entrepreneurs tend to find things, uh, sometimes earlier than business, or that's, that's kind of how you framed it. Um, what I've noticed because I'm very deep in the world of content marketing on the Mm -hmm. one hand, in other words, how do we create content and, and deliver it as a value added product and service that actually delivers more value and help to our customers versus just interrupting them with messages about how fantastic we are. Right. Mm-hmm. So you have this sort of content marketing thing. And then over he- here, uh, you know, on the other hand, you have uh, uh, people trying to generate content and application solutions that help to empower people and remove pain and all this kind of stuff. Right. It's the same fundamental activity. It's just that in one, you're, trying to in the first example you're trying to use it to facilitate business goals like marketing and sales and cust- and employee retention and reducing sales cycle time or increasing sales or growth or all that kind of very business goal sort of stuff right whereas with the the social entrepreneurship stuff the the kind of projects that we're seeing with the world summit awards you know the goals are very much around the value outcomes that are delivered so What's the impact? Are, are we actually educating more kids? Are we getting more healthcare delivered remotely in rural places? Are we all, all cleaning up the waterways, all that kind of stuff, right? In increasing small business prosperity, ending poverty, and so on. Now, um, when businesses get now into the world of trying to create value-added applications, in other words, so let's take, you know, uh, respirators and face masks are very big now, so I'll, I'll use this as a as a uh, a product that a lot of people know what they are now. Um, if your job, if you are a manufacturer who makes these things, and you're trying to you know get safety managers to uh, buy your stuff, okay, you can of course talk about how fantastic your respirators are. Well, mm-hmm. Everybody's going to do that, right? Um, but getting deeper into what are when you when you start to say okay we want to create content that's going to add value but how do we do it how do we go to safety managers or other people and figure out what it is they really care about what it is that keeps them awake at night so that we can find a way to help them sleep and remove that pain with this content or value added service we are delivering and that's something that a lot of businesses have uh some of the industry and tribal and segmentational knowledge to actually feed answering that question, but often they're not very good at answering it. What they're good at is the area of solutions that they are already good at providing, right? The respirators and so on. So they tend to stay there. And so one of the big obstacles is how do you get them to think outside the box to, in essence, democratize innovation Mm -hmm. across the people who actually have the insight and know those customers and are crucial for identifying what that is. So for example, your sales force and all that kind of stuff, your people, your account managers, you know, in those businesses are people who know so much 
about their often have so much insight and so much raw data about their customers that it, and you know that you can build on that in order to identify some of these pain points that you're going to solve. But it's a really hard new skill that people need to learn. Well, I don't know if it's a hard new skill, but it's a new skill. And it takes time and dedication and process to actually do that. And that and I did that for years over at 3M. I, I took teams who had never done content marketing before and 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 or were very, you know, steep on the learning curve in terms of digital marketing. And I'm taking these cross-functional teams and helping them co-design a solution for uh, uh, for their customers, for the people they're trying to add value for, and end up often coming up with really brilliant solutions as if they were really brilliant content marketers, but aren't. They're new at it, right? Mm-hmm. So um, how do you kind of kind of teach and, and confer that? Now, when we look at, you know, studies out there around how are people doing, for example, with their content marketing programs, you'll often see that they're not very successful with it, that often and people, you know, like Content Marketing Institute and others who kind of track this, that over the last decade that, you know, their content programs either not delivering satisfactory business results or failing altogether or whatever, roughly hover around 70 percent and don't really change a whole lot from there. And that's a really but at the same time, what we see is that businesses continue to want to invest in content. So there was a lot of resiliency to actually committing to budgets because people understood, hey, how important in, it was. In, it's yeah. it's critical, mm-hmm. be, be, you know, because content is uh, there interfacing every customer relationship touch point that exists, and the demand for content on a self service fr- coming from the customer kind of basis because of the internet is so high that if you don't get good at it, it, it's just, you know, it's the location, location, location of the 21st century. You got to get good at it. So one of the reasons why so many of these businesses are failing with their content marketing initiative isn't because they don't know how to produce and deliver content in the sense of making blogs and articles and whatever and getting it out there. That's, that's an operational sort of competency that a lot of them have or just need to tweak and get better at, but that doesn't solve the problem of what it is they should be creating in the first place and and delivering in those formats. And for that, the value models for how you go about and diagnose what is going to help empower people Mm -hmm. are much stronger in this world of uh, social entrepreneurs and nonprofits and NGOs. So what I see happening from an extrinsic force perspective perspective is that this demand for content, this competitive space for adding value, for generating audience and developing relationships and all those things is basically forcing a convergence of uh, the the kind of everybody needs to be publishers kind of thing on the one hand, mm-hmm. getting that format and the operational model together for, uh, uh, for delivering content, but also the how do we innovate in, in order that that uh, content can be stuff that just people actually care about in the first place yeah. so we didn't waste all our money. So this whole, you know, process of getting better at identifying, you know, ways that we can be helpful and relevant to people through the value added content and applications that we're creating, you know, is one of the forces that is driving us into this whole find your why and purpose related business uh topic that we hear people talking so much about which can range everywhere from getting involved in issue campaigns, kind of like we saw with Dove and Always Like a Girl and all that kind of thing, 
or like with Tom's shoes, actually get that integrated into the business model where they're, you know, donating a certain percentage of product for to people without shoes, you know, as people buy them. And there's many other examples of this, but um, identifying what the, you know, the purpose and value and goals that exist within the business are or can be and how that can then connect to the their legitimacy um, and right fit. For that in adding more value to customers is is a critical piece. Well, Carlos, I feel like I could talk to you all day. Such valuable insights. It's been wonderful to have you on the podcast. Thank you so much for joining us. Hey, it's a pleasure. Thank you so much. And stay safe and happy and calm and breathe. Yes, I know. Um, to all you viewers out there, don't forget to subscribe. We're going to continue to bring you really great content just like this. Um, I hope you all have a happy quarantine. You're staying safe and sane, and I will talk to you next time. <laughs>